Welcome to the Campfire Conversation Podcast. I'm your host, Cole Kelly. Ask almost anybody who's been to summer camp, whether they be kids or staff members, and they'll tell you, it is awesome. They will also tell you through their words, but mostly through their actions, that they learn a ton while there too. As a longtime camp director, youth sport coach, and father to three growing young men, I know the lessons that we learn at camp can be hugely beneficial for all of us back home in the real world. So, each week, I'll spend some time around the digital campfire talking with professionals from inside and around the summer camp world. We'll share their lessons, their ideas, and their practices in a way that I hope will be immediately useful for your life back home. So, pull up a seat, get your marshmallow ready to roast, and let's spend some time learning together around the campfire. At camp, we spend a lot of time training our high ropes and climbing staff how to securely attach campers and themselves to the harnesses and safety measures. We teach kids how to attach different pieces of wood in the wood shop securely, how to attach components of rockets together so that they can fly off into the air, and how to put the poles into the tents in order to make good sleeping space in the woods. At camp, though, the most important attachments we create are between the campers and their counselors. If the kids feel safe and secure in, in that relationship, we've always thought that they'd be a lot closer to enjoying really a remarkable experience at camp. Having just spoken to Dr. Tina Payne Bryson, I now understand much better how this works and why it works. And I can't wait for you to learn too. Dr. Bryson is the executive director of the Center for Connection in Pasadena, California, a mother of three boys, a longtime lover of summer camp, and also a longtime attachment researcher. Along with her co-author, Dr. Daniel Siegel, Dr. Bryson has written numerous books, including The Whole Brain Child, The Yes Brain, No Drama Discipline, and the upcoming The Power of Showing Up. In fact, if you'd like to get a chance to get a free copy of her book, The Power of Showing Up, please leave an iTunes review to enter the drawing for the book. I'll announce the winner of the next podcast and send one along to you. I've learned a lot from Dr. Bryson over the course of the last several years and was so excited to get her around the campfire to talk. I've not met anybody who can make the incredible advances of brain research both understandable and applicable better than Dr. Bryson. I hope you'll enjoy this campfire conversation with my new friend, Dr. Tina Payne Bryson. So Dr. Tina Payne Bryson, I'm so happy to have you around the campfire. Uh, Thanks so much for inviting me. I love to get to talk about camp and about kids. And so I know it'll be a great conversation. Well, you know, and you and I were talking just briefly how your son has had this amazing camp experience up at Chippenaw, exploring, you know, trips every which way. But but how did you get involved with camp to, to begin with? Well, you know, I never went to camp except mm-hmm. like maybe a little church retreat weekend. And, and I didn't know kids who went to camp, really. Um, but what was interesting is that one of our very best friends from college uh, talked about how he grew up going to Camp Chippewa in the Northwoods of Minnesota and how he then became a counselor and that his um, he would talk about how his experiences there, um, and it's a tripping camp, so they take these long trips and uh, wilderness survival kind of stuff. How even now, and, and I'll say now he's he's uh, close to 50 now, and he still talks about how when he's gone through really hard things in his life as an adult, that he can think back about those experiences and say, gosh, I, you know, I made it through that. Or it was just a huge source of his stories Mm -hmm. Uh, foundation for resilience. And so once I started having uh, kids, he, he was, you know, he and his twin brother, who was then the director of the camp. um, And I knew their family really well. Then uh, I was like, all right, maybe I'll take a look at it. And so um, (laughs) my husband had gone to visit the camp. And, uh, and so I, I'm an attachment researcher, right? So I'm Mm -hmm. all about like, and I don't mean attachment, like my kids can never leave me, but (laughs) But, and then we can, well, actually we should talk about that, but yeah. you know, I, I was like, I don't know, like him being that far away from me, that, that was really hard for me. It was a big personal growth experience for me sure. as well as it was for my kids. Um, but all three of my boys have now gone to camp and, um, and you know, what, what I found so incredible was that, you know, the first summer my son left, you know, he, my son is a, um, my eldest is a sporty, um, not very chatty sharing feelings kind of kid. Mm-hmm. Um, 
total introvert. And his letters came home from camp that first year at nine. And he sounded like Emily Bronte. And he was like, he would be like, this is my tear on the page. And he would like circle it. And he's like, I miss you so much. You know, and I was like, oh my gosh, like, is he okay? Right. So it was a two week uh, period. And, um, you know, of course, by the time I get the letter, he's fine again. You know what I mean? But I didn't know at the time. So, uh, so he got home and I was like, wow, you sounded so homesick. What was that like for you? And he said, mom, it was the hardest thing I've ever had to do. And then he got this little like impish grin and he's like, and I did it. Nice. And that was a huge transformative moment for him and for me to right. remind me that, you know, I've done all this work in all these years growing up to build a kid who's secure, right? Who, mm-hmm. who can handle adversity as best he can. And that allowing him to face those challenges gave him an opportunity to see what he was capable of and for me to see what he was capable of. Um, And then I'll just, as a quick uh, follow-up to that, each year the letters got uh, less and less dramatic. You know, it's like the next (laughs) year was like, I miss you guys, but I'm really having fun. You know, and then the year after that, it was like, so-and-so got kicked in the the crotch and fell off the boat. It was hilarious. You know, (laughs) not even an I love you or I miss you. And eventually I'm writing this letter so I can get my hot dog Sunday night you know, and, and actually I got one from one of my other boys this summer that just, um, that just had like a X on it. Cause they have to, <laughs> write a letter the is that proof of life? <laughs> exactly. So I just, I'm a big fan. And, uh, so that first year after I, I sent my son, um, I was hosting one of those, you know, sort of events in my home where you can invite other people who are curious about camp. And, mm-hmm. and uh, Michael Thompson, the director at the time, uh, came and led the event and, after he had given his spiel, I, you know, I raised my hand and I said, you know, everything you're saying is supported by the neuroscience and my field is interpersonal neurobiology and the experiences these boys are having are wiring their middle prefrontal cortex. And I start talking and he's at first going, oh my gosh, I've got a crazy mom here. <laughs> but then he, what he says is that he, he stopped and he started listening and he said, oh my gosh, this is really helpful. And so I actually started coming and uh, going and, and I trained their staff every summer before campus arrived. And I've done a lot of work in the camp world at conferences and, and at individual camps because I'm a big believer. And I think that what camps do can be transformative in the lives of kids and parents. So I'm, I'm so glad that, that you have this podcast to share, share that with parents. Oh, thanks. Yeah, it's been so much fun learning from, you know, experts across a whole bunch of different fields that all love camp and see it as a great boon for, for everybody who goes through it. And it's funny, you know, you talk about your son going off and it being an attachment issue for him and for you. Um, I was just with a family this past weekend talking about camp with a seven-year-old son and the mom said, all right, so what can I expect, you know, for, for me? And I said, I, you need to expect this since this is your, your youngest son and you've, none of your other boys have done something like this, it's going to be one of the hardest things you personally has ever gone through. You know, yeah. because just like you said, it's, you feel like you're ripping your heart out and sending it on a bus and off you go. Right. But yet that's also a healthy part of attachment, isn't it? Absolutely. So that's actually what the science says is that what happens is we create, and in the literature they actually call it a secure base. So you okay. create a secure base so that your child can go out and explore. So mm-hmm. yeah, unhealthy attachment is, is, there are different patterns of attachment. And one of the patterns of unhealthy attachment or, or what's called insecure attachment is when um, the child or the parent is clingy where they can't then move on from that secure base. So mm-hmm. healthy attachment is creating a secure base so that the child can go out and explore in bigger and bigger circles. Now, you know, when kids are two, it might mean, you know, running, you know, halfway across the playground and then coming back and putting their hand on their knee, on right. your knee. You know what yeah. I mean? Yeah. So it expands over time. And every kid's a little bit different in terms of how much um, time they need in that secure base before they can venture and how far out they'll go. Mm-hmm. But that is, an, that is an important part of that. And I think one of the ways we can think about our goal as caregivers, and, and actually this is, this is, I'm talking to parents, but this is actually something we could, you know, I teach camp counselors as well mm-hmm. and teachers and anybody who invests in youth development, is that one of the things we have to think about is expanding a kid's window of tolerance. Mm -hmm. 
So we all have like a window of what we can handle, right? Like I can handle so much stress before I flip my lid. I can handle, you know, so much anger before I kind of lose control or whatever. So we have this kind of window of tolerance of what our nervous systems and what our brains can handle in terms of an intense emotion or experience before we kind of lose it. Mm -hmm. And one of our goals in development is to expand our kids' window of tolerance. And the way we do that, and, you know, some people talk about that as resilience, but one of the ways we do that is we let them practice doing hard things Mm -hmm. with enough support. Mm -hmm. And I think as parents, we have to remind ourselves that the support doesn't always have to come from us. It can come from a peer or it can come from a teacher or a camp counselor or, mm-hmm. you know, those kinds of things. But allowing our kids to have experiences where they sit in discomfort or negative emotion with enough support um, allows them to have that. It was really hard and I did it moment. And then as parents, we have to practice expanding our windows of tolerance. I mean, I remember, you know, when I was a kid and, you know, I grew up in the 70s and 80s, um, I when I would go out and ride my bike around the neighborhood, if I got a flat tire, I didn't have a way to contact my mom except to walk home or to mm-hmm. knock on a neighbor's door and call her or whatever. And so I learned how to you know, navigate and problem solve in that way and expand my window of tolerance. But what I think is really interesting is you know, my mom had to learn to sit in the, she's out riding her bike in the neighborhood. I hope she's safe. I hope she's okay. Then I get my driver's license and it, she has to expand her window of tolerance for that as you know, as that happened. And then by the time our kids go to college, we should have a wider window of tolerance for understand or having them away from us. The problem is with all of our devices, mm-hmm. parents don't have to sit in that discomfort as much. And so that's one of the reasons camp can be a little bit more of a challenge for parents than it was in the past because most camps are tech free and we can't get that immediate dopamine hit of knowing our kids. Okay. Because we're not checking in on them, but that's so good for us. We need to do that as parents, because let me tell you, I have a kid who's in college and I have a device and he has a device. He doesn't always respond to me. I sometimes, <laughs> you know, I'm like, I need visual proof of life at least once a week, but you know, we have to learn how to do that because even with the technology, they ignore you when you're in, when they're in college. I'm just, right. yeah. Yeah, I, I firmly remember my father showing up on my doorstep my first year in college and looking at me and saying, I'm going to take you out to dinner. I'll take all your friends out to dinner. It's going to be great. You're going to have a good time. But here's the deal. You will call your mother every Sunday night. Yeah. So Okay. Yep. Because I just forgot and I never even thought about it. It was like, okay, I get it. And he drove eight hours, really 16 round trip just to tell me that. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That's important. Yeah. So it's interesting. I never really thought about from a window of opportunity standpoint that we as parents no longer practice that as much. So therefore it's, it's smaller, right. but I'm even thinking about right. from the standpoint of allowing, you know, I had a, a younger son trying to button his sleeve on his button down shirt. And I was like, you know, you're 12, you got to know how to do this. Like I, I'm not, but I sat there and watched it for seven minutes, honestly, for seven minutes. And it was Oh, it's awful. It's like, cause I just wanted to like fix it and let's get out of here. But that's a skill he's got to learn. And that's what I think camp does is it puts kids in those situations where they have to learn. And also parents have to get used to that idea of they're gone. They're in someone else's care. And trusting that, that they're going to be okay, that, that they have the capacity to problem solve and to do those things. And good for you for letting him struggle. That's so hard. I'm so oh, awful. And I, you know, and, <laughs> but I, and I remember too, I think one other thing to think about is that when we step in and we rescue our kids and we mm. fix things too quickly. And of course, sometimes we need to do that. But sometimes we do need to advocate for our kids and we do need to step in. Um, but when we do that as a routine thing and kind of just how we function as parents, we're communicating a lot of implicit messaging that we often are not thinking about. Mm -hmm. And I remember, you know, I live in Southern California. It's rarely, the weather is rarely severe enough that if my kid forgets his jacket, it's going to be a big deal at all. Right. Right. I'm a cold natured person. So I bundle up, you know, when it's in the sixties or whatever, (laughs) but um, I remember when my kid was five and it was, we were going to pick out a Christmas tree or something. So it was chilly and kind of drizzly and my kids shorts and t-shirts, no matter what. And I'm bundled up. So I'm thinking about it from my perspective and uh, we're walking out the door and I was like, Hey, you know, do you want to get a coat? And I I shouldn't have even asked the question if I was sure I wanted him to take one, I should grab your coat or, you know, do you want to grab your coat or do you want me to grab your coat or which coat do you want to choose? Right. So anyway, do you want to take the coat? And he's like, no, I'm good. 
And, um, and I'm like, no, but it's really cold outside. I really think you should get one. And he's like, I'm good. And I was like, well, I think you should grab one just in case. And he's like, if I'm cold, I'm cold. And I was like, well, I'm just going to grab it just in case. And so I grabbed it and I got in the car and I thought about how really what I communicated in that moment is I don't trust that you know what you need. And of course he's five. So sometimes he doesn't, but it was, it was kind of a lesson for me thinking about this in general. I don't trust that you know what you need. I don't trust that you can handle it if you do kind of make a mistake. Um, and that, you know, I, I, I don't, I have to rescue you. You know, like, so I was communicating all these things. And so when we step in, we're often telling our kids, I don't trust that you can handle this. I don't trust that you can do this. I don't trust that you can learn this or figure it out. Right. So we communicate a lot of that in ways that really undermine what we really are wanting for our kids. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, in one of your books, The No Drama Discipline, which I love, by the way, you talk about the idea of discipline is, shouldn't be thought of as a negative consequence, more as a function of learning, and that we actually have to get our kids to the point where they're self-disciplined, where they, they can learn and they can handle themselves. And I think that that's a very difficult thing for a lot of parents to actually get to, because again, we want to fix it. We want to move on quickly. We've got a thousand things you know, on, our, on our plates, and this is just one piece but you know, we have to kind of get through it. But I think the more we allow our children to get in those difficult situations and learn how, oh, I've gone through this now, I can do it, much like Michael Thompson did with his trips you know, early on in his life, that allows you to create a story in yourself that I am resilient, I can figure this out, or I can rely on other people, not just mom and dad. Absolutely. And I think, you know, the, the buttoning the sleeve, that's such a good example, but also in those discipline moments, let's say your kids acting like a jerk and they're really being disrespectful to you or they're being aggressive with a sibling or, you know, whatever it is, we have to remember. And that's why one of the reasons I love no drama discipline is I think it, it basically the, the message of no drama discipline is the whole point and purpose of discipline is to teach and build skills. That's actually what the origin of the word is disciple. And it's really Mm -hmm. about teaching and mentoring. Mm -hmm. Um, And so the whole point is to teach and build skills so that they are self-disciplined so that they have the skills to handle themselves well in the world. And usually when we discipline, we're not thinking about teaching. We're thinking about consequences or we're thinking about our own rage or anger or whatever it is. And I Mm -hmm. think what the sort of message of that book is, is the whole point and purpose is to teach. And most of what we do in the name of discipline automatically in our own reactivity is counterproductive because it actually makes it less likely kids can learn. So I love that book because it's kind of a, it's kind of a game changer for a lot of people. And it was for me as I really started wrestling with those ideas is that, you know, really the way we think about and respond to kids' behaviors is really not very effective a lot of times. And so, you know, even when they're messing up in bigger ways, um, in those discipline moments, those are all opportunities to teach and build skills. Right. Well, and that's, I really wish that they gave me a book like this before I had kids because it <laughs> would have helped me quite a bit. It's not too late. I'll tell you. Oh, I know. <laughs> you know, as you know, we have discipline issues with teenagers and, and when the stakes are higher like that, you know, like, and I, I'm a, um, I've worked with a lot of um, adolescents and their parents as well is, you know, the stakes get higher and kids mm. begin drinking or vaping or doing all these kinds of things. And, you know, parents can scream and shout and throw consequences at them, but that usually doesn't change behavior. It right. actually um, can further widen the chasm in the parent child relationship, making it less likely kids talk to us. But, you know, um, and this, one of the ways we can think about even those moments is to think about, go back to this idea of attachment because, Um, and I should define really what attachment is, but I'll just say related to this point that, you know, when our kids mess up in ways in these discipline moments, if we put relationship first before addressing any particular behavior, Mm -hmm. it actually builds more connection, um, and more, uh, communication that keeps our kids safer in the long run. And if we approach, like, I'll just give an example of, um, a family I worked with their, their teenager had been drinking and the mom, the mom, he came, the kid came home drunk and the mom said, this was a mom who was a massive yeller. And she was like, you know, he, he was throwing up and stuff. So I just knew it wasn't the time I, you know, got him to bed and I said, we'll talk tomorrow. And she said, he's still sleeping. So you have to talk to him, talk me down before I talk to him. <laughs> yeah. And, um, I started with the four S's of attachment, which we can talk about in a minute, which are safe, seen, soothed, and secure. Mm -hmm. And basically what I said to her is, 
you know, start with safety and say to him, if you're not going to keep yourself safe, Mm -hmm. I want you to know that's my number one job as your mom is to keep you safe. And if you're going to make choices that make it so that you're not safe, I am going to step in. The rains are coming in and I will make sure you are safe. And here's what that might look like. And so then you can explore, you know, what kinds of things you need to do in terms of, you know, maybe not getting to drive or having Mm -hmm. to not hang out with a certain group of people after a certain time. So you can figure out those things, but we have to think about those less as like punishment, but more as here, here are ways, here are parameters we're going to put in place to keep you safer. And, and, you know, those kinds of conversations, when we say, I'm going to keep you safe, uh, as opposed to, you know, you're going to get punished. Right. They turn out a lot, a lot more effective. Sure. Well, and also it sounds like you're coming more from a first principle situation. Mm -hmm. No, this is the basis. You know, we talk about with families from camp all the time, like the first and foremost kid has to be safe physically and emotionally. That's, non-negotiable, nothing else matters unless we can do that one piece. And then you add everything on top of it rather than a a fear-based standpoint of you can't do that. And if you do it, then you're going to be punished. No, it should be more fun that first principle. And I think that first principle is rooted in our our neurobiology. So the brain's number one care is safety. And if our nervous system and our our lower the lower parts of our brain detect threat or danger. And there's this awesome word that Stephen Ford just came up with called neuroception, which okay. is basically where our nervous system and the lower structures of our brain are, are assessing, is there safety or is there danger? Mm-hmm. And so when our neuroception says danger, our brain and nervous system can only focus on survival. And so anytime, you know, we are activating, you know, danger or fear states in kids, that are outside their window of tolerance, mm-hmm. that's when we're going to activate the fight, flight, freeze, or, or faint system. And that's why, so, you know, we have this book called The Power of Showing Up, that, that mm-hmm. uh, our newest book that I wrote with Dan Siegel. And I'm so proud of this book. And I think it's so important. This is a book that I actually wanted to write um, as part of uh, The Whole Brain Child, which is the book we're most known for. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was it was so much and so intense that we decided to pull it out and sort of wait on it. And I'm so glad we did because it's it's really important. And here here's what's here's what's big about this Cole. Um, you know, in the camp world and in a parenting world, there are so many books and resources and seminars, and there's just a wealth of information, and that's great, but it can be a little overwhelming. Yes. And what I love about this science is that it really boils things down to one important piece, and really, this piece is kind of a part of a lot of, of most everything we'll read about when it comes to kids and their development, and that is based on the longitudinal research that's been done across many, many cultures that one of the best predictors for how well kids turn out is that they've had secure attachment with at least one person. So let's define what secure attachment is. Attachment is an inborn instinct that mammals have that allows us to survive. So if you're, you know, if you're a little baby, you know, bear cub in the wild and you hear some sort of, you know, snarling predator, predator noise coming at you, your biological instinct is to run to your bare parent sure. um, to help you survive. So it's, it's at its fundamental level about seeking proximity or getting close to an attachment figure who will be, help you feel connected and protected to help right. you survive. So we all have this instinct that gets most activated when we are in distress. And that's really important as we talk about this. So what that means is that when we're in distress, which sometimes looks like bad behavior in human beings or sometimes like dysregulated emotions or falling apart, that's when we most need connection from someone who will help us feel these four S's. So Dan and I love to use acronyms and we love to use, um, you know, easy ways for people to remember this. So, what, what that means is that as parents, if we can, and camp counselors and teachers and all of these people, um, if we can help kids feel the four S's, not perfectly, but a majority of the time, they can develop this secure attachment. Um, so the four S's are feeling safe. So we've already talked a little bit about that. But another piece of that is making sure we are not the source of 
terror or danger or fear in kids. Ah, there you go. Sure. This is huge. I mean, this is actually, the, the, there's an insecure style of attachment called disorganized attachment that's actually very, very sad. And we see it in um, cases where there's abuse. But we see micro versions of this sometimes in, in non-abusive homes as well. So think about this for a minute. Let's say you have a biological, and this is true, you have a biological instinct to go to your attachment figure when you're terrified or you're in danger or something really scary is going on. But what happens if your caregiver is the source of your terror, the source of your danger, the source of your fear, then you have a biological circuit that also says, get the hell away from what's dangerous. You have two competing biological circuits. Yeah. That's a really scary situation. I have to imagine it leads to so much confusion and so many dysfunctional issues going forward. It, it, it changes really how the brain develops. And it's, it's one of, if that is the case throughout childhood, it's actually one of the best predictors we have for adult mental illness. So that's a mm. very, that's a very important thing for us to think about. And I, I know a lot of people more and more are learning about ACEs, adverse childhood experiences and the studies done on that and how the more, you know, um, and I wish, I wish we had a different word for that, that um, those studies besides adverse because Right. Adversity is good if it's within our, our window of tolerance with enough support, but these are really more traumatic um, adversity kinds of experiences. Sure. Um, but also in our own homes, you know, if, even if it's not abusive, you know, if you have parents who are screaming at each other mm. um, or you have, um, you know, as parents, we flip our lids and we, you know, we start screaming and yelling at our kids where we become really scary um, and we don't become a source of safety and help and support, but rather we become the source of their distress. So um, that's one of the things we talk about in that first chapter in our book about safety is first do no harm. And mm-hmm. to think about, you know, are we causing, you know, significant fear in our kids? And, you know, one of the arguments I've heard is, well, it's good for kids to have a healthy dose of fear. Well, that's just not, that's just not true based on what we know about the brain and the nervous system. That's old school science and thinking. Right. And actually, um, kids, kids, and the, the purpose of that, I think, in that old school thinking is we want kids to respect us. But I'll tell you, in talking to a lot of kids over the years, kids respect parents who... Um, manage their emotion. When they're angry, they still control themselves or say, I can't talk to you right now because I'm too upset. I don't, I know I won't handle myself well. They respect that a lot more than a parent who loses their cool, you know? So Absolutely. Well, and that's even yeah. true for, for kids in, in camp situations. They want to be around people that can manage their emotions and handle it rather than the, the young man or young woman that flies off the handle. Absolutely. And, you know, one of the most important things, and I know you talk about this a lot when it comes to camp, that helps us feel safe is predictability. Right. The yep. brain, when things are predictable, the brain doesn't have to be on that hypervigilant, high alert kind of state. It can relax, which means then it can give attention to learning and exploring and, and you know, doing those things. And I, I think that's one of the things that I love about most camps is they have a very predictable schedule, mm. which allows kids to feel safe when they're outside their comfort zone of, of being home. And that safety allows them to take risks in better ways. Like, right. I'm going to try this activity, even though I'm not good at it, I want to get better at it, or I want to earn ranks in something or now I can go explore whatever this is. And so mm-hmm. that predictability um, of, that, of the schedule at camp and the traditions at camp and those kinds of things are a really mm-hmm. important piece of that. Well, yeah, I mean, you talked about it earlier, the having that base that from which you can explore from. If you have that secure, safe base, yeah. you can move on from there, whether it's a camp or whether it's a home or wherever it is. It seems like that's yeah. such an important aspect of, of our children's lives growing up. It is. it is. So the second S is seen. And that's mm-hmm. really, I think, the hardest one to to do in this day and age in terms of um, the new norm of hyper parenting. Sure. Um, I, I actually had a colleague and I won't give him credit because he probably doesn't want me to say his name with what I'm about to say. Um, <laughs> who We were talking about, I said, you know, I think people call it helicopter parenting, but that's way too passive of a term. Like parents don't just hover. They're much more intrusive than that. You know, right. it's more like, I like to call it curling where they're brushing the ice. <laughs> on the road you know they're really right there right in front of their kid sure. um, and my colleague said they're so intrusive maybe we should call it suppository parenting so, <laughs> um, yeah, it's pretty pretty intrusive but I think in this hyper parenting culture and actually there was a, a fairly recent study that came out that showed that parents who are in low income and who, or who live in poverty see this hyper parenting where we sign our kids up for all these enrichment things and we over schedule them and we expect all these you know we pay for extra tutors and all these extra things to help our kids achieve and be successful, which Mm -hmm. I'm using air quotes as I'm saying that, um, because we have to rethink how we define success beyond achievement. 
um, is that people see that as the ideal, but that is not what the science supports. Uh, mm-hmm. That hyperparenting is actually not helpful for kids. What they need most is the four S's, right? right. So, um, but see, being seen, um, I think, is harder for parents because we want our kids to achieve, and we have this hyperparenting kind of goal-driven, achievement-based kind of thing, and we may then not see our kid for who they really are. Right. So. For a kid being seen, it's first and foremost feeling like people get them, that their internal experience is understood by the other. So my co-author Dan likes to call that feeling felt, and I love that phrase. So, you know, if my, if my seven-year-old is freaked out about a spider that he thinks he saw in his room as he was getting into bed, um, and he's like, I don't want to sleep with a spider in my room, and he's upset about that, um, you know, if I, if I dismiss it and I'm like, you, you know, why are you being such a baby? Everyone has their spiders all over the house. It's not that big of a deal. Mm-hmm. Then his internal experience doesn't match my, my, my response doesn't match that. It's like, okay, well now I'm alone in my fears about the spider. No one's going to help me. Right. She didn't get how important that was to me or how scary right. that was to me. Whereas instead I can say, you know, oh, I wouldn't want to sleep with a spider in my room either. Let's look for it. And if we can't find it, you know, maybe you can sleep in your brother's room or something sure. like that. Um, so but really I think the, being seen, you know, a lot of kids. Yeah, they're, they're looking for a confirmation, both yeah, so, verbal and also probably nonverbal cues as well. I mean. Yeah, and that's huge, that empathy piece. I mean, I think that, uh, and we'll talk a lot about empathy when it comes to the soothed piece too. But so in the, in the psychology research, we sort of talk about a coherent core self. So I'll give an example. So I was, uh, I was with my little niece who was about four and I was frustrated with something. I was trying to get something open and I couldn't get it open and I was really frustrated. And um, she was like, Auntie Tina, are you mad? And if I had said no, I'm not mad. Then her internal experience of observing that, trying to make Mm -hmm. sense of that is she looks mad. Um, And my response is, no, I'm not mad. That creates a disconnected core self. Like I thought I knew that, but either I'm wrong, I can't trust myself or I can't trust her. right? Right. But if instead I say, yeah, I'm frustrated. I'm trying to get this jar open. Then her internal experience and my response are a match. And that creates a coherent or what makes sense core self. So um, being seen is really about someone getting you. So I'll, I'll tell another quick story. My husband uh, is an amazing parent, um, way better at like being calm than I am typically. So we do some tag teaming, especially when the kids were little. Um, but I, I was on the road, I was out speaking, uh, talking about books or something. And um, he called me and he's like, I need you to talk me down. And I was like, what's going on? And he's like, JP's in the bathroom and he's in there, you know, yelling and, and crying. And, and I said, well, what's going on? And this is like our kid who is super easygoing, who doesn't get upset very often. And um, he's like, well, I told him I was going to take him to the movies. And he said, um, I want it. Can we get popcorn? And I said, no, we're not getting popcorn today. And he had a total tantrum. And so I told him, you know, you, um, you're really lucky you're getting to go to the movies. Like, you know, that's spoiled if you think you're going you're gonna to get popcorn every time. And, and, and I, so, you know, it's really easy for me to parent ideally when I'm in another state and sure, I'm just right. myself <laughs> and had a good night's sleep, right? So I might have handled it the same way. So uh, anyway, so I said, okay, what's his experience? Um, and I was like, this is more about you being fearful about him being spoiled. Let's just slow things down for a minute. What's his experience? And I was like, what's he feeling? And he's like, he's disappointed. And I was like, right. So um, I said, and to be honest, you know, last time we went to the theater, I bought him popcorn. So his brain kind of expected that, I'm sure. So I said, here's what I would do if you, you know, can want to be the ideal is go in and say, you're really disappointed. You really wanted popcorn. Is that right? So instead of saying, you're so spoiled, you know, you can't get everything you want. You're lucky. You're getting to go to the movies. A lot of kids can't ever get to go to the movie, you know, instead of that, which, you know, you hear how easily it comes off my tongue, right? We all know that, that you're spoiled. You should be more grateful, you know, kids in Africa's lecture. So um, anyway, I, so basically the idea is, you know, you go in and you go, you're really disappointed. You had an expectation for popcorn. He's like, yes. And so he feels seen. And when that match happens, like he gets it. 
actually it regulates the whole nervous system and he can move back into his green zone, which is what I'm with right. the way. So you're less reactive and more receptive exactly. at that point. Exactly. He moves right. into the receptive state and, um, and it doesn't mean he has to buy him popcorn. Right. So I said, you know, once you say, you know, you're really disappointed, you wanted the popcorn, you can still say, you know, we're not doing that today. Sometimes we do. And sometimes we don't. And I know that's really disappointing. And I'm right here with you while you're disappointed. <laughs> so this is not about being permissive or giving in. It's about, being present for what they're feeling. And I think that idea of just being present, that's mm. really what our kids need need most from us um, is that idea of I get it, I'm present to what your experience is. Sometimes it's ridiculous, but we still just, you know, reflect back so they know we get them. Right. Well, and that actually, it makes me think of the next S, which I hope we'll talk about soothe. You know, when I think of the word soothe, I think of babies to like two or three year olds who are crying on your shoulder. You know, I don't think about the 15 year old that I'm, I've got to try to you know, get from point A to point B through this yeah. emotional situation, but soothing for them is just as important. Just Absolutely. To- and, and for you and for me, okay? yeah. <laughs> this, is a, this, is a, this is a mammal thing. We, we need that. And it regulate, you know, connection regulates our whole neurophysiology. So it's really, it's really the same thing, Cole. So just like those babies and we bounce them and we pat them or we sing to them or we rub their backs. And when we do that, it actually calms down their whole nervous system. And when your two or three-year-old is losing her mind, like you think her head is going to explode because the tail broke off her goldfish cracker or whatever it is. Um, She needs to be soothed. And when our 15 year old is throwing a fit because he has too much homework to do and, you know, and it's not fair and all the teachers give too many tests in one day, or when your significant other had a horrible day at work, it's all the same. And I'll tell you one of the best ways to soothe is through empathy, which Mm -hmm. sometimes is words and sometimes not. uh, I had a beautiful conversation with a, a colleague of mine at um, at the Camp Collab conference um, mm-hmm. in November this last year in Austin, and we were talking about grief and about losing people. And he was telling me about a friend of his who 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 had um, a really significant loss, and he said I didn't know what to say to him. And he said I just sat there with him. And he said he must have thrown thrown the basketball, um, you know. 500 times and he was just dribble and shoot and dribble and shoot. And he's like, I just sat there under the goal and I just sat there with him for hours and I didn't say anything. And I was like, that was the most important thing you could have done really is to to be present non-verbally. So soothing basically is, so the first thing that we talked about is you are safe. Mm -hmm. The second thing we talked about is sort of like the idea of I'm with you. You know, like, mm-hmm. I get you. That's that scene. Then the third part is, I, I can, I'm going to help you. I can help you here. So when a kid is really falling apart, again, remembering that attachment is activated when we're most in distress, that's going to look like, oh, you're having such a hard time. I'm right here with you. And it might mean rubbing a back. It might, might mean sitting. It might mean listening. Um, it might mean asking, how can I help? Um, what do you need right now? You know, so, um, you know, one of my, I have a story I tell about one of my kids slapped his brother and slapped so hard he left a handprint on his back. And so first I comforted the victim and then I had to go deal with the discipline moment. And so I right. came around the corner and my son was just furious. He was like, oh, you know, he was like totally in this dysregulated, you know, um, threat mode. And, um, you know, I could have started yelling and screaming or, you know, given him a consequence or whatever. But what I did, because the first thing is to stay calm ourselves, right? To soothe Which ourselves. It's hard to do. Yep. <laughs> so hard to do. One of the hardest things. But then I could say to him, oh, you're so mad. What happened? Come here. And I wrapped my arms around him and I said, what happened? You know, and he told me and I, I so then I jumped back to safe and seen and I'm like, you know, that would have made me mad too if my brother did that. I, I understand why that would be so, you know, so upsetting to you. I'm, you know, I'm, I get that and I'm rubbing his back and I'm, I'm soothing him. Then when he's back in a regulated state, then we can say, Hey, you know, we need to talk about what happened with your brother. You really hurt him. And then we address the behavior and all this. So again, it's not permissive. We address the behavior and talk about making things right. But soothing is essential for helping us move back into these states of regulation. And it's, it's, it's what we can do for each other with a lot of empathy. It's really yeah. 
people. Yeah. Um, one of the things I teach when I go teach camp counselors, and I always teach the four S's, um, and I talk about, you know, the idea of being a secure base and all that, is, you know, we talk about safe, seen, and soothed. And one of the best ways, actually, and this is in the No Drama Discipline book, too, is if someone's really having our time, if you can get below their eye level, like sit on the floor in a really relaxed posture, mm-hmm. it communicates to their brain safe. It communicates to their brain, I'm here to listen and I'm, I'm totally present to you. And we're going to work this out together. And it's, it's really powerful. It's a good strategy. Yeah, absolutely. It reminds me of Steve Baskin's story about how the first time at eight years old, he goes to camp and the counselor gets down on a knee and looks up uh, into you know, young Steve's eyes and say, I get to be your counselor. All of a sudden, I feel safe. Awesome. I love that. I'm a big fan of Steve Baskin too. Yeah. Um, and uh, I love that. I think it's really powerful. So yeah. safe, seen and soothed. And again, our kids need it, but our significant others need it. And our best yeah. friends, need it, <laughs> and my, dog, my, my little mammal dog needs it. Yeah. Um, so then the fourth S is secure and secure is not really like, I feel secure about of my, about myself. That's actually for sure an outcome. Mm-hmm. But what I mean when I say secure is that not perfectly again, you know, we can mess up all the time by not helping a kid feel safe, seen, and soothed. We can do that all the time, but the key is repair. When mm-hmm. we mess up, when we miss it, mm-hmm. when we respond in ways we that didn't work well or that didn't feel good to us or to them, we repair. We go back and say, oh, I didn't handle that like I should have, or I really wish I'd handled that differently. I'm so sorry. What was that like for you? And we have that reflective dialogue with them. So we can mess up all the time, but if enough times, um, and the psychologist Winnicott had a great phrase called um, the good enough parent, and that's mm. definitely what we're talking about here, that yep. um, if enough times a kid feels safe, and soothed, predictably enough, um, patterned enough, Mm -hmm. um, then that leads to the brain wiring to securely know that if I have a need, I truly have a need, someone will see it Mm -hmm. and show up for me. And so what happens then is the brain wires to expect that if they have a need, someone will show up and help them feel safe, seen, and soothed. And when their brain wires that way, then what also happens is their brain wires in ways to help them be able to do that for themselves, to help themselves feel safe, seen, and soothed, and then to be able to do that for other people. So what happens is these attachment relationships where kids have repeated experiences of feeling safe, seen, and soothed, one of the things we know is that it builds the middle prefrontal cortex, which is where we have insight and empathy and sound decision-making, executive function skills, attuned communication, intuition, morality, flexibility, mindfulness, you know, all these things that are really the core. of That's mental- a lot of good things. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I can't even give the whole list. But it's the core of mental health, which, and we know kids are having mental health, we're in a period of mental health crisis for kids. It it promotes mental health, it promotes social and emotional intelligence, it promotes academic success. Uh, You know, so when kids have secure attachment, it actually leads to all these incredible outcomes. So what happens is really, and this, I'm oversimplifying a little bit, but that idea of um, you are safe, I'm with you, I'm going to help you, we'll figure it out together. Mm-hmm. I'm actually walking us through the, the nervous system to the higher parts of the brain. So the you are safe is nervous system and brain stem. I'm with you and you know I'm, I, I hear what's going on. That's midbrain limbic. And then we move to prefrontal. We'll figure this out together. And that's actually what happens when kids have these experiences is it starts building the brain in optimal ways from the bottom up so that they have greater prefrontal capacity. And so then they can go go on and provide that for themselves and other people. It's pretty powerful. That's incredible. Yeah. I think about it from a standpoint of you're going from the ancient to the more recent parts of the brain and, and that's just, it's awesome. So what a great way. And it's funny, you know, I guess when you think about it from an evolutionary standpoint, the, the frontal part of the brain is so young relative to the rest of it. Absolutely. You know, it's, it's not surprising that we're still not very good at it. <laughs> right. And I think, you know, one of the big reasons I love to talk about it with camp counselors is I basically say to them, you have two jobs this summer. One is to help kids get back into their window of tolerance when they're outside, like when they're losing it and they're having Mm -hmm. a hard time, to help them get back to a state of regulation. And number two is to expand their window of tolerance over time. How do you do both? The four S's. So we walk through that safe, seen, soothed, secure. And here's the other piece that's so important, Cole. The best predictor for how well 
we are able to provide kids with the four S's is not whether or not we had it with our own parents. <laughs> right? Yeah, that's great. Forty <laughs> percent of people don't have secure attachment with their parent, or they have like a you know we have like I like I had secure attachment with my mom, but I had a form of insecure attachment called avoidant attachment or dismissing mm-hmm. attachment with my dad, where it was kind of like an emotional desert. He didn't he didn't think about the internal world or emotions and he was just not comfortable with affection or talking about emotions and stuff. The key is remember the single best predictor is having one person who shows up for you. Um, So there's a mix of all of these, these patterns of attachment, but what's important is that what's the best predictor for us being able to provide that to other people, to our significant others, to our children, et cetera, is whether or not we've reflected on our, our relational experiences and made sense of them. So when we can get what's called a coherent narrative and we can say, my parents didn't show up for me, or I had a parent who made me not feel safe, or they really wanted me to be someone I was not. They didn't get me at all. No one saw me. I was totally on my own or no one soothed me. I, in fact, I had to take care of my parents or whatever the story is, is that when we reflect on those experiences, we can develop an understanding of how those experiences have impacted our own development. And when we go through that process, it actually builds our prefrontal cortex like it does when we have the attachment relationships. And, you know, it's, it's really, really powerful. So, you know, in the power of showing up book, we have a section at the end of each of the four S chapters that talks about sort of showing up for ourselves and asking questions to help us think about safe, seen, soothed, and secure from our own relational experiences, not just with our parents, but partners we've had over time and Mm -hmm. other relationships. So, I think that's key too, is that when I go and talk to counselors or parents or educators, I say, you know, a big part of being able to show up for kids is to kind of show up for ourselves and do our own work and and have ongoing development ourselves. And that's important too. Yeah, there was the unreflected life is a difficult one to to go for. So there's a quote, I can't remember exactly one, but (laughs) (laughs) well, Dr. Bryson, this has just been awesome. You know, as usual, I, I, every time I read one of your books or I hear you speak, I've got a page full of notes. I got to go back through and think a little bit more, reflect on this. But um, thank you so much for generously giving your time around the campfire. This has been incredible. Well, like I said, I'm a big fan. I'm a big fan of camps and the experiences and how they impact development for kids and parents. And one of the things that's really fun to talk about right now in the camp world is how a lot of counselors are in their 20s and mm-hmm. how that's still a period of, of really open brain development. And so in the camp world, you know, we're in the business of youth development and, and that means the, the development of our staff too. And so I'm excited. My uh, eldest who grew up going to camp is going to be a counselor. this Yes. Year. And that's always sort of been a goal for, for me because I know that will be such an important development experience for him to be able to show up and be provide four S's to all the little littles that are there. So. Oh, I'm so excited for his experience coming up. It's funny. We talk, we, we hear more from the staff members and the kids during the year, yeah. you know, it's because you know, adult relationships and whatnot. Um, and hearing the feedback about how camp has changed these 19 to 22 year old young men and women it's so rewarding and we get to see it with the kids. They have so much fun and they talk about it at the end of their experience. Everybody's crying when they go home, but to hear those, get those notes two, three, four months later after camp about how that experience, that short intense experience has really changed them is, is really incredible. It's It really is. It's really rewarding. And I think that's another thing about camp that's interesting is because it's such an intense period close together, we know that that actually works really well for neuroplasticity. The brain mm-hmm. changes really quickly mm-hmm. um, in those kinds of environments. And so that's really exciting. You know, one last thought I'd love to leave your listeners Please. with is the idea that, you know, a lot of times as a parent or even as a therapist or a school counselor or best friend or all the roles that I play, there are times I don't really know what to do in a moment. I don't really know exactly the right thing to do or say, or if I'm going down the right path. And what I love about the power of showing up is that I feel like I have a North star that's Mm. grounded in the research. Um, And that is that if I just can pause for a moment and say, my main job in this moment is to show up, to be present, to help the other person feel safe, seen, and soothed. That's the most important thing I can do. And and if I have that as my North Star, I'll find things to say or ways to respond 
And if we, if we in that moment can help people feel safe, seen, and soothed, what we're doing is we're stimulating and activating growth in their middle prefrontal cortex. So, you know, if, if the issue is not doing well in school or whatever else, we're, that's the part of the brain we need activated anyway, right? Mm-hmm. So I think that's, that's key. And I, I can think about it. I'll, I'm going to mix my metaphor here. But one of the other ways I think about it is that it's th- that, that idea of showing up and being present and, and bringing the four S's, that's always on the front burner, no matter who the other person is, no matter what the situation is or what the behaviors are. And that the behaviors of the situation are back burner. I, I can't, I still have to stir the back burner. I still have to tend to it so it doesn't boil over or burn. Sure. So showing up is my primary North star, my primary pot I have to attend to. And when I do that, I almost always feel good about how things played out in the, in the moment. It's hard to do. It's simple, but it's hard to do. But I think just holding on to how do I show up and be present in this moment that's a game changer for all of us in all of our relationships. God, I love that. I love that idea. I, you know, I know we don't video this, but gosh, I got this huge smile on my face. I, I love that. <laughs> that. That will probably be the, how we train our staff next summer. So. <laughs> well, Tina, if, if people want to learn more about you or connect with you or find out more about your books or your speaking, what's the best way for them to do that? My website is tinabryson.com and Bryson is B-R-Y-S-O-N and I'm on Instagram and Facebook and Twitter. Um, and uh, of course, you know, um, just I, I get to be the guest on a lot of podcasts so they can mm-hmm. even just Google my name and podcast and, and listen yeah. to other things about other books and all the books are in audio form too. So if you're not a much of a reader, there's a lot of ways to, to get some additional information. Awesome. Well, I, I can't recommend them highly enough. And obviously, if anybody just listened to this, they'll know that they need to go and, and check more out of what you've done. So thank you so much for your time and um, sitting around the campfire with me. We, we can't wait to learn more from you as you continue to do your research and, and your generous writing. Thank you, Cole. All right. Take care. Take care. I really don't know where to begin. I've listened to the conversation several times, and I really get something new from it each time that I do listen. What could be a better gift for someone than than showing up in a way that makes them feel safe, seen, and soothed? I know there have been many moments in, in my parenting and, and camp directing that I've spoken too harshly or thoughtlessly. There have been other times when I thought I was saying the right thing, but because I didn't lead with the relationship first, those comments fell on unresponsive ears. Dr. Bryson's research could not match better with my personal experience. The more we make those around us feel safe, seen, and soothed, the more likely they are to flourish. It doesn't matter whether you're a camp or in the classroom, on stage, or on the court. If you help people that you're teaching or coaching feel those three S's, then you'll definitely get them to secure. Thanks for taking the time to listen. If you enjoyed this podcast, I hope you'll take a few moments to leave a review on whichever platform you're using to listen. If you're on an iPhone, you can go to the podcast menu, choose library, click on shows, and then select the Campfire Conversation, and you'll be able to find the rating information near the bottom. More good reviews will help these ideas spread. One last quick note. We really realize that we receive a lot more than we give on a daily basis. It could be information or attention or things or or love. We make our lives rich by being grateful for everything that we do receive. So as you leave the campfire circle, I hope you'll spend some time thinking about the gifts around you with gratitude. Have a great week. Thanks again to our friends at Scope for sponsoring the Campfire Conversation podcast. SCOPE stands for Summer Camp Opportunities Promote Education. They provide children from underserved communities with life-changing opportunities through the experience of summer camp. SCOPE campers benefit from a positive, safe, and healthy environment led by excellent role models who give them the chance to develop their full potential. We both believe that summer camp reinforces what children learn in school and enhances overall academic learning. If you would like to help give some wonderful children a life-changing experience, I hope you'll join me in supporting Scope. You can find them online at scopeusa.org and on social media at support scope.